You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up our Christmas series, and we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy today. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, you can put your hands up. Our ushers will gladly put a copy of God's Word in your hand, and you're free to keep that um, so that you can have a copy of God's Word at home if you don't have a Bible at home. So 1 Timothy, and uh, we're going to be wrapping up our series, uh, Christmas Cards from God today, and the title of the message this morning is Amazing Mercy. Amazing mercy. And uh, as we dig into this, as we turn in our Bibles, I just want you to right now just think for a moment about uh, the greatest feat in human history. Think about the greatest feat in human history and whatever that may be. And um, maybe your mind first goes to some of the, the great construction projects that have taken place around the world over the centuries. Uh, maybe something like the pyramids of Egypt or the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, or a Stonehenge, or you know, the, the wall, the Great Wall of China, or the buildings of Rome. Uh, incredible, incredible. Or maybe your mind goes to you know, some of the, those people that have traveled across the world before we had airplanes and we had uh, boats with motors and giant ships, and they, they just went on these sailing voyages. Maybe you think of someone like Marco Polo and his travels to the Orient, or uh, someone named uh, Ferdinand uh, Maglin, a Portuguese explorer. I think that's how you say it anyway. A Portuguese explorer who was the first to circumnavigate the world. Uh, pretty amazing. Or maybe you think of Christopher Columbus and uh, his accidental discovery of uh, the Americas. Or maybe Lewis and Clark and their journey west and crossing the continental divide. Or maybe you think of uh, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. So many great things. Or maybe you think um, Frodo and Sam. You know, Frodo and Sam, the Lord of the Rings. Well, you know, as you think about these different things, these great feats, um, one of the things that comes to mind is that we, we, as human beings, love stories. We attach our lives to stories. We attach our lives to the narratives of history. Um, but the best stories are the real stories. Uh, the greatest stories are for sure the real stories. So sorry, Frodo and Sam are out. Um, if you didn't know that, sorry to ruin your Christmas. Um, but, uh, but, you know, as we think about what the greatest feat of all time, the greatest feat in human history, hands down, hands down, it's what we've been talking about over this Christmas series. Hands down, it is God, God Almighty, God who is perfectly holy, God who is above all things, stepping down into human history, into the creation of his world, coming as a baby in a manger. Isn't that amazing? And today we're going to unpack why that is so amazing, why that is greater than anything else that has ever been done in human history, um, why, why this is the greatest feat in all of human history. And so we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And I'd just like to read that for us and then just kind of unpack this in bite-sized chunks, four bites from it this morning as we look at what the Apostle Paul's written here about the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's look at verse 15 down to verse 17. 
Paul writes this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I think we can all say amen. Amen to that. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're just going to break this passage down. You know, the Christmas card line that um, we've seen, we've probably all seen it on a Christmas card at one time or another, maybe we've even seen it this year, is that line right in the beginning that Christ Jesus came into the world, and maybe it says Christ Jesus came into the world, dot, 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 or maybe, you know, yours was really bold and said to save sinners on it. Um, But there's so much around this, there's so much else that is being said here for, for us to just read that and not to really take a moment to meditate on the weight of what's here and the awesomeness and the glory, we kind of miss the point. And so we want to dig into this a little bit this morning, and I've been so thankful for this series as we've come through it uh, leading up to Christmas and then on Christmas Eve, just for how the Lord has pressed in a fresh way into my heart the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the glory of His coming. You know, if you've been in church a while, you've heard over and over again that Christmas is all about Christ's coming, and the unfortunate thing about hearing that many times is it can start to grow stale or cold in your heart if you're not careful. And so I've been so thankful that God has brought new freshness into this, not by teaching me something that I didn't know, but refreshing the truths that were already there. And I'm praying that He'll do that for us this morning as we dig into this passage. And so let's jump right into it. Um, Four points this morning, we're going to go through them fairly quickly, probably going to focus on the second and third a little bit more um, than any other one, but we're going to start right here, right at the beginning of verse 15. So verse 15 says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. We'll pause right there. Um, The greatest feat in human history, Jesus Christ coming into the world. Why? Four reasons why this is the greatest feat in human history. Reason number one, because it was the greatest mission. Number one, it was the greatest mission. It was the greatest mission. Jesus Christ came into the world. Now, we've already kind of mentioned this a little bit, but just think about this for a moment in your own mind. God, who is outside of time, outside of space, cannot be contained, chose to willingly step down into human history as a baby born to poor parents laid in a manger. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Doesn't that shock you in some way that that he would choose to do that? Like, why wouldn't he come as a king? Why wouldn't he come as the conqueror? Why wouldn't he just show himself in all of his glory and blow our socks off? But like, to come as a baby in a manger. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's glorious, that God would choose something that is way beyond our knowledge and our comprehension, something that doesn't even really, really make sense to us in so many ways. God's wisdom being so much greater than our wisdom that he would send his son as a baby into this world. Now, Paul says right here in this verse, the saying is trustworthy, verse 15, and deserving of full acceptance. Um, He says that it's trustworthy, it's deserving of full acceptance. Now, 
Just the statement today of Jesus Christ came into the world, uh, some people will you know, roll their eyes at that, some people will deny that, some people will challenge that, and they'll say, well, you know, sure, people think that there was a guy named Jesus that you know, existed, and there's a lot of myths and stories about him, and they'll say things like this, um, they'll deny his actual existence, or they'll, they'll say this one, well, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus, but he was really just a good moral teacher. He was just a, you know, a good teacher, and he uh, really was seeking just the freedom of the Jewish people from under the hands of the Romans, and they'll ultimately deny who Christ is and what Christ came into the world for. Now, whenever you encounter someone like that, just a couple things that you need to keep in mind so that your faith is not challenged or shaken, um, just a few things, and so that you can also give a discerning reply. I'm just going to give you just three things right here, three simple things, okay? First of all, first of all, the, the uh, amount of manuscripts and the authenticity and reliability of the New Testament is not surpassed by anything else in history, okay? So we need to just be grounded on that. We just need to know, okay, that, that it is trustworthy, that it is, it is reliable, okay? There's, there's more evidence for the New Testament account of who Jesus is than there is for Shakespeare, Plato, the list goes on and on, okay? More manuscript evidence of, of the writings of the New Testament that confirm who Jesus Christ is and that he came into the world than there is even, now get this, even than there is for the Roman legal system. So our legal system derived from the Roman and the Latin legal system, uh, there's more historical evidence in the New Testament for Jesus Christ than there is for the Roman legal system. Wow. You don't hear that in university uh, every day, but that's the fact. Um, second, second thing, second thing, even uh, ancient secular authors affirm and confirm the existence of Jesus Christ and the fact that he did miracles, okay? Now get that, even secular authors, historians confirm the existence of Christ and that he did miracles. So these are unbelievers, people that didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, that he was God come in the flesh, but they did believe and affirm in their writings that he did exist and he did do miracles, or that his followers said that he did do miracles and people witnessed those miracles. Isn't that crazy? That secular people, unbelievers, would affirm Jesus Christ. Okay, third thing, just think about, this one is, is huge, just think about the disciples and their boldness, their boldness for Christ after his death and his resurrection. You know, the disciples were so bold, they were willing to lay their lives down. Would anybody be willing to lay their life down for something that they knew was a lie? Now, see, here's the reality, stories pass away, myths pass away, but the truth of the gospel remains Paul says that it is trustworthy, it's deserving of full acceptance of the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world, the fact that Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, sinless, pure, born in the fullness of time, came into this world. This is a fact that is fully reliable and worthy of our trust. But also, it's just more than that. It's more than that because a fact doesn't change your life. But if you really understand what's at the heart of this fact, what's at the heart of who Jesus Christ is and what he came for, that begins to change your life in a pretty large way. And so let's just think about what's happening here, okay? 
We think of a lot of great feats in human history. We think about maybe a lot of great rescue missions in human history. Uh, one that I particularly love is uh, Ernest Shackleton and his rescue of his crew down in the Antarctic seas um, and them being stranded on an island and all that he did to rescue his crew over the course of a year and not one person was lost. An amazing rescue story. Or maybe we think of the miracle at Dunkirk and the rescue there. Or maybe we think of Hurricane Katrina and the rescue there or 9-11. But listen, beyond all of these is ultimately the rescue mission of Jesus Christ. Okay, Luke 19.10 says it this way. Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Isn't that awesome? An amazing rescue mission that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, didn't just come to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost, a seek and save mission. He came into the world that was his own, and he sought out the people who had willfully betrayed him and turned against him through sin and rebellion, and he saved them. That's awesome. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more. So this is the first thing that we need to see. We need to see that this is the greatest mission of all time because Jesus Christ came into the world. Secondly, we need to see this though. Secondly, this is the greatest mission of all time because, because it meets the greatest need. Okay, the greatest mission meets the greatest need the greatest need, we all desperately, desperately, desperately need a Savior, don't we? And maybe, you know, if you've grown up in church, um, you've heard that many times before, and that's one of those things that kind of grows dull in your heart in a way, and you start to think, yeah, I need a Savior, but you know what? I understand that, but I'm not that bad, not as bad as the guy sitting next to me, or maybe the person over there. And we kind of start to, you know, we grow accustomed to our sin, don't we? Do you ever find that in your life? The, the sin that was maybe there in your life uh, four years ago that you were so repulsed by in that moment of conviction, but it's still there, is not quite as repulsive as it used to be. Anybody else find that? And we start to say things like, well, that's just the way that I am. Or, or maybe we even start to shift the blame off on God and say, well, well, God made me this way. We've probably done that. Or we start to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we start to look at someone else and we start to say, well, I'm not as bad as you know, this person over here. And what happens is we really start to undermine our own sin and we actually start to undermine what God says about our sin. There's good news here, though, that the Lord came into the world to save sinners. Notice the text says that. <laughs> don't undermine your sin too much. Don't, don't try to get away from it too much because the good news is only for those who would classify themselves as sinners. If you won't count yourself as a sinner, well, I don't know where that leaves you, but it says that he came into the world to save sinners. Now, sometimes we do whitewash that word. Uh, sometimes in the church, we just kind of get used to it. And, you know, a simple definition of sin is really anyone, anyone who is alienated or separated from God by disobedience. Okay, who's heard that before? Okay. Wow, only four of you. Okay. I've got something for you to learn this morning then. <laughs> no, no, we've all heard that before. Okay. It's just really not that early, but we're not awake. All right, okay. Um, so we're waking up now. This is good. Okay, so a sinner is anyone who's alienated from God because of disobedience, separated because of sin. Okay, we understand that. We get that. But again, we whitewash this term and we lose some of the weight of it. 
that God wants us to know and to feel even about our own sin and our own sinfulness because it's an important part of the message. Unless we understand our own sin and our own sinfulness, we really can't understand the mercy and we can't live in true thankfulness for it and we can't even see and grasp who our Savior is. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to take a little test right now, okay? Um, Anyone here like tests? Anyone like tests? One person in the back. We had that first service too. Okay, one person. There's always one who likes tests. Most people like me, no, we don't like tests, okay? Um, But we're going to do this test anyway and you're going to like it. You're probably not going to like it. I'm going to like it, all right? Um, So we're going to do this test anyway, but we're going to take a sin test this morning, all right? Wow, listen to you cheer, okay? No, not at all. Um, But we're going to do this. Why? Because it's important for us to understand our own sin. And so I'm just going to read off a number of things. Uh, You don't need to write these down. Um, Nobody's going to collect it. Uh, Nobody's going to score you. The ushers aren't going to score you on the way out, okay? This is just for you, um, just to understand uh, where, even where you're at in your own heart and life right now and, you know, where you were and how great and awesome God's mercy is towards you. And so I'm just going to read seven things right here. And uh, really, they're all yes or no questions. So um, it's pretty simple. All right, so I'm just going to read them one at a time. Just be honest, okay, with yourself. Um, and don't try to score your spouse, okay? Uh, just worry about yourself, all right? So here we go. Question number one, seven questions, all right? Uh, first one, have you ever in all your life, said anything that was untrue or intentionally misleading? All right, question number two. Have you ever, in all of your life, ever craved or desired something that wasn't yours or desired something more than God or looked lustfully on a man or a woman? Question three. Have you ever, in all of your life, taken something that didn't belong to you, no matter how big or how small? Okay, number four. Have you ever in your entire life used the Lord's name in vain or spoken it lightly or flippantly? Number five. Have you ever, even for a moment, lacked faith or not trusted God fully? Number six. Have you ever not shown kindness or compassion when you had the opportunity to do so? Sorry, that was number six. Number seven. Have you ever had an angry or malicious thought against God or denied his existence in any way, shape, or form, either through thought, attitude, or action? All right. Okay. Let's, uh, let's be honest here. Um, how many of us would honestly say, yeah, yeah, I scored all seven. Hands up. Let's, let's actually put our hands up for this. Okay, my hand is up not to tell you to put your hand up. My hand is up because guilty on all accounts, okay? Um, so, so if your hand's up, you scored 100% on the sin test. Um, I scored 100% on it. That's not um, something good that we should be proud of. But listen, if your hand's not up, um, I would just encourage you to even go back and think about some of those questions and even just consider them for yourself. Um, At any point in your life, in any way, okay, but if your hand was up, if you did put your hand up, all seven, um, right now, I just want to speak to you, okay, thank you for your honesty, Um, But therefore, if you put your hand up and you scored all seven, right now, by your own admission, you've just admitted that you are or were at one point in your life a lying, lusting, idolatrous, thieving, blaspheming, faithless, 
self-consumed, heartless God-hater. Now, the reality is we don't like to think of ourselves that way, do we? Even if your hand was up, you don't want to think of yourself that way. I don't want to think of myself that way. And that's not who I am today by the grace of Jesus. But listen, why do we talk about this? Why do we bring this up right now? Because unless we see our sin, we cannot see the mercy of Jesus Christ. Unless we understand our sin for what it is, unless we see where he has saved us from, we will grow tired of the grace that we have received. That's why. That's why we need to think about these things. That's why we need to remember this. Maybe you're there and you're sitting in your seat and you're like, ha ha, my parents had seven, I only had five. I'm doing pretty good. Well, listen, okay, um, James hits it pretty dead on when he says, listen, if you've even sinned in one area, you're guilty of it all. James 2.10 says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of it all. You're like, that's not fair. It's not fair. I'm not guilty of it all. You know, just because I've messed up in one area, I'm not guilty of the whole thing. Well, you know, don't think of the law of God, the, the rules and the laws of the Bible as a whole bunch of random things, okay? The law of God is one thing. Listen, um, just compare it to our legal system today. Think about that, okay? Um, if you break one law in Canada, you're a criminal, correct? If you break one law in Canada, you are a lawbreaker, correct? Right, okay, okay, same thing. If you break one of God's laws, you have broken God's law, okay? The whole thing. It doesn't mean that you've broken every single one, but you are guilty if you've broken one. And so, you know, whether your hand was up or not uh, this morning, we all stand guilty. The Bible is very clear on this. Uh, Romans 3 tells us that we are all guilty before a holy, perfect God, that we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of his glory, his righteous standard. The word sin uh, means simply, very simply, to miss the mark, okay? If the mark of God's standard is a perfect bullseye, um, and sin is a, the word is a, it's a archery Word. It's taken from an archery illustration. It means to miss the mark, to miss God's standard. If, if God's standard is a perfect bullseye, we miss it every time. You're like, well, I've got lots of arrows, and we still miss, okay? We miss the mark, okay? We miss God's standard. Why? Because there's something broken in humanity. There's something broken in us. It is our sin nature. It is Adam and Eve, their choice in the garden to choose sin and to turn away from the living God. And so we're all guilty. Now, the good news here is simply that when we do see our sin for what it is, then we've got open eyes to see our Savior for who He is. Listen, just go back to the beginning of the verse, okay? Paul says um, that Christ came into the world for who? Sinners. And so if you scored seven out of seven on that test, you qualify. You're in, okay? Christ's grace is for you. It's for you today because when you see your sin for what it is, then you can see your Savior for who he is. And that's awesome news. And I love this quote from the Christ-centered exposition commentary. But why did Jesus come, it says. But why did Jesus come? Jesus Christ came to live the life we could never live, to die the death we deserve to die, and to rise in victory over the enemy we could never conquer, sin and death. That is an awesome statement. And that's what we want to unpack right now. Why? Because Jesus Christ came on the greatest rescue mission. He came with the greatest need that we needed a savior. And then third, he came to deliver the greatest gift. He came to deliver the greatest gift, the greatest gift where the guilty are given mercy, 
Listen, we all have admitted that we're guilty. We're guilty before a living God. But God doesn't condemn us in our guilt. God, in fact, is so good and so kind that he chooses to show us mercy. Now notice this. You'll see it right here in the text. Let's, let's take a look down. Notice what Paul says. Paul shares a bit of his own testimony right here. Verse 16. Verse 16. But I received mercy. Just let that kind of hit you for a second. Okay, we're going to unpack Paul in a second. But this is awesome. Can you say that in your own life, that you have received mercy? But I received mercy, Paul says. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Listen, three things that we need to understand about mercy right off the top right now. Uh, we're just going to bring these up on the screen and then we'll unpack them a little bit more. But three things that you need to understand about mercy right now. First of all, the mercy of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you and it's sufficient for me. It's fully sufficient, okay? His mercy is sufficient for us. Uh, Paul is gonna be the example for that. No matter which side of the spectrum we find ourselves on, whether we think that we're so good we don't need mercy, Paul's gonna be the example for that. Whether we're so bad that we think we don't deserve mercy, Paul's gonna be the example for that too. Um, his mercy is sufficient for me. Second, his mercy changes me. The mercy of Christ in your life begins to change you. That's an awesome, awesome thing. Maybe it's not as fast as we desire. Maybe it's not in all the ways that we want right away, but it does change us. We're gonna see that in this text. And then third, his mercy, Christ's mercy, is ultimately my only hope and your only hope for all of eternity. It's our hope for all of eternity. Notice this, right at the end of the verse, Paul says that he received mercy in the beginning and that all who believe in Christ receive mercy for eternal life, he says. Now, we're going to let Paul be our example here because he is the example of the text. He puts himself out there in this passage and in other passages of Scripture. Uh, Paul uh, we read a lot about Paul in the New Testament, and as you would know, a Paul was formerly, what was his name before it was Paul? Saul. It was Saul, okay? And Saul, Saul thought that he loved God, okay? Saul was a Pharisee. And now, the Pharisees in the Jewish system were very, very, very devoted to keeping the rules, Okay, the Pharisees were, they were the, the high-end religious guys, okay? They, they were the ones that were, that were all in for Judaism. Now, Paul wasn't just a Pharisee, okay? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning he was in the upper echelons of the Pharisees, okay? If most Pharisees are here, Paul was here, all right? He was above and beyond, okay? He was devoted, as devoted as you could get to keeping the Old Testament law. He was an insanely rigorous rule keeper. In fact, the Pharisees were so devoted to the Old Testament law that uh, they found there wasn't enough laws. They had to make more laws about how to keep the laws of the Old Testament. That's how devoted they were. In fact, they were so devoted that whenever they would go to their herb garden and pick their herbs, they would actually tithe one-tenth of all of their herbs. That's crazy, okay? Now, here's the issue with the Pharisees. Here's the issue with Paul. Paul, in all of his good works in Judaism, Paul, in all that he could muster, in all of his rule-keeping, in all of his love for who he thought God was, Paul missed the point 
Paul was consumed with his own righteousness, with what he could do to try and please God. Paul was all about trying to keep the rules to live up to a standard that he could never obtain. And because of that, he was missing out on God's mercy. He did not consider himself to be a sinner and therefore did not consider himself uh, to be one who needed mercy. But God showed up in Paul's life in an incredible way. And you'll remember, uh, Paul, Saul, was on the road to Damascus. And so Saul, the incredible, rigorous, rule keeper, all in, Judaistic man who was religious in every single way, okay? This guy was in fact so in that he was on his way to Damascus. He had received letters from the Sanhedrin um, telling him and giving him permission to go to Damascus and to persecute Christians. Paul, Saul hated the church. He hated Christians. He thought uh, that Christianity was a sect leading people away from the living God. Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians and to no doubt uh, put them in jail, to torment them, to punish them, and possibly even kill them. He was on his way there, and he had this amazing moment, this encounter with Jesus Christ, this revelation, this light from heaven and this voice from heaven, and in that moment, Paul was changed. In that moment, Paul received mercy. He received grace from Jesus Christ. He had an encounter with Christ. His life began to radically change right in that moment, right there in that place. And so Paul, Saul, the guy who was the rule keeper, who was all in in this way, who thought, I don't need mercy. I've done so well. God is going to be pleased with me in that moment right there by the grace of Jesus Christ realized his desperate need for a savior, realized who in fact it was that had come into the world, Jesus Christ, the savior, and saw his desperate need for mercy, realized the depth of his own sin and was able to receive it. That's pretty awesome, awesome transformation. Up until this point, Paul hated Christians. Um, Up till this point, Paul considered all of his good works to be of some account. He considered them to be something that was helping him, a blessing, a good thing. At that moment, he began to consider his good works as filthy rags, as garbage, as refuse in the sight of God. And if you're here today and you're, you know, living the religious life, if you're the person that's here today that's just trying to do everything to please God and just trying to keep all of the rules apart from Christ, if you're doing that today, well, you need to hear that, that your good works, apart from Jesus Christ, are filthy rags in the sight of a perfectly holy God. Because every single time, every single time you shoot at that target with your good works, you miss if you don't have the grace of God through Jesus Christ in your life. Because he is the only one that measures up to, up to God's standard. He is the only one that hits the target. He is the only one who doesn't miss the mark. And so here's the awesome news today. Okay, whether you scored a one out of seven on that test or whether you scored seven out of seven on that test, the good news for you today is that you are guilty before a living and holy God. You're like, that's not good news at all. No, that is really good news. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to bring you mercy because you're guilty, because you never could do it. You never could live up to it. I could never live up to it. But God sent his son Christ into this world to give you mercy, which is you don't receive the punishment that you do deserve, and then grace, that you receive blessing that you don't deserve for all of eternity. Notice what it says right at the end of the passage. Eternal life. Think about this. Jesus Christ came into this world 
to live the life that you couldn't live, that I couldn't live, to die the death that I deserve to die, that you deserve to die, in order to give you and me a gift that we don't deserve in any way and we could never ever obtain any other way. How awesome is that? Eternal life. Man, so let me get this straight. Okay, kids, you'll get this. Imagine if in your house the only rule was to eat your vegetables and clean your room. You'd be like, yes, that'd be awesome. But you really hated vegetables and you really loved a messy room, okay? Um, and so your parents said, if your room is not clean by the time that we get home from work, um, and if you don't eat your vegetables at dinner tonight, you're going to be grounded for X amount of time, okay? Now imagine your parents came home, your room wasn't clean, you didn't eat your vegetables at dinner tonight. Um, and you realized, I'm going to be grounded for X amount of time, okay? So if that happened, now what if your parents came in and they said, you know what? Your room's not clean. You didn't eat your vegetables tonight. You deserve to be grounded for this amount of time. But instead, I'm going to clean your room, and I'm going to eat your vegetables for you, and I'm going to take you out for ice cream tonight. You'd be like, these are the best parents in the world. All the parents are like, no, it's not working that way in our home. You got it, it's not working that way in my home either, okay? But this is, this is a, that's a lame example of what God does for us, okay? We don't live up to his standards. We don't live up to it. We shake our fist in rebellion against him. Even when we try to do good works, we try to do good works to prove our own goodness, which is ultimately an assault against God and his holiness and his righteousness. Okay, we don't do what he asks us to do, yet in his mercy and his grace, he doesn't give us the punishment that we deserve, but instead gives us blessing that we don't deserve. Wow, wow. Now Paul got this. Paul understood this. Another guy in history that understood it is uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, a lot like Paul, uh, the famous reformer, he was also a lawyer and a very religious law-keeping monk. And Martin Luther, after he came to Christ and realized that it was all through Christ's mercy and grace, Martin Luther looked back on his life in monasticism and he said this. Um, he said, if any monk ever got to heaven by his monkery, surely it would have been me. But it could never happen. Martin Luther realized that all of his attempts to please a holy God resulted in brutal failure. Why? Because in the flesh, we can't please God. It's only through his mercy. It's only through his grace. And this is what Paul wants to demonstrate here. This is what we need to get in this passage today. We need to begin to understand and we need to begin to look at our sin as what it really is. When we confess our sin, Okay, we're told to confess our sin, John 1, 9, okay, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. If we confess our sin, we need to understand what it means to confess sin, because to confess sin is not simply just to say, I sinned, but the word confess in John 1, 9 actually means, it actually means to say the same as God says about your sin. So just think about it, okay? Pick one sin from your last week, okay? If you're anything like me, you shouldn't have a hard time finding one, okay? Um, if you do good time to go home and examine your heart, okay? So pick one sin from your last week. What does God say about that particular sin in your life? What does he say? Okay, he says it's destructive. He says it's hateful against him. He says that it's against your family, that it's harmful. He says that it's done in pride. Well, I don't know what God says about your particular sin, but unpack in your own mind what God says about sin. So when we start to say the same thing as what God says about our sin, we begin to get some of the weight of our sin 
And that begins to open us up for his mercy and his grace. That leads to a heart of thankfulness, a heart of hope, a heart of looking to him. So we say the same about our sin. Now here in this passage, Paul is saying the same about his sin as what God says about his sin. Notice what Paul says right here. He calls himself the foremost of sinners. Now, do you think that Paul went through all the catalog of past sinners and was like, yep, I'm worse than that guy, worse than that guy, worse than that guy, worse than that guy? I'm not sure. Maybe the Holy Spirit led him to that. But Paul's looking at his life. He's zeroed in on his own sin. He's not looking at his neighbor. He's not pointing the finger at someone else. He's looking in at his own sin, and he's saying, how on earth could God love me? How on earth could God show me mercy and grace? I'm that bad. I piled up all of these good works against God. I even hated people enough that I sought to kill them. Paul was the guy, or Saul was the guy, who was there at the stoning of Stephen. Okay, you remember Stephen, the first martyr in the church? Saul's the guy that's there at the stoning of Stephen, and when he's there, he's encouraging everybody else, basically by holding their coats. He's saying, you know, take your coat off, and you can throw the rocks harder at them. Come on, get them, guys. And he's holding and guarding all of the coats and the luggage and cheering them on. That's who Saul is. And right here, Paul, okay, looks back at his old life, and he focuses in on his sin. And he's like, man, wow. I was so bad, but God is so good. He's so good to give me mercy and grace. And why, why would you do this? And, and what the Holy Spirit brought Paul to is he brought Paul to the point where he realized that God did that to lay down an example for all of us, okay? The example. Whether you think you're so good that you don't need a savior, okay, newsflash, you do, okay? because Saul was that guy, and it didn't work, okay? Or whether you think you're too bad that you don't deserve a savior. Saul was that guy, and it did work, okay? He did receive a savior. He did receive mercy. Just look down at the verse. Look at the mercy that we've been given. Look at the mercy that you've been given, okay? But I received mercy, Paul received mercy. We can receive mercy. You can receive mercy today. I can receive mercy. If you've already received the mercy of Christ in your life, rejoice in it. And just think about this for a second right now. How, how captivated are you with the fact that you've been shown mercy? Do you feel entitled to it? That's one of the issues of being around and in church long enough is that we can start to feel entitled to mercy. Well, I'm really not that bad. I go to small group. I um, give. I serve. I Great. That's, those are awesome things. I don't want to undermine any of those things, but those aren't things that will justify you. Those aren't things, okay, that deserve mercy. That's kind of like the bare minimum, okay? We don't deserve mercy, but the fact that God gives us mercy is an awesome mystery. So do you understand right now in this moment how much mercy you've been shown in your life? Do I understand that? Do you understand how patient God has been with you up until this point? How patient he is with you right now in this moment while you sit here in this servant? How patient he is with you. And parents, just think about how patient you are with your kids. Wouldn't you like it if God was that patient with you? I wouldn't like that at all. Not a bit. I praise God every day that he's not as patient with me as I am with my children. Because if he was, it'd be all over. And then I pray, Lord, in your mercy, change me. Make me more like yourself. Um, that's merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, patient. 
I love the picture that we get from a church history of the missionary uh, David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary mostly in the Connecticut, uh, New York, Western New York, well, not Western New York, but New York area in around there, and he was a missionary to the Algonquin Indians. And uh, David Brainerd, young man, um, loved Jesus and uh, went and he preached uh, to the Algonquin Indians. Actually, he went and learned their language first for a year, um, very hard language, some uh, words have over 24 letters in them. That's kind of crazy <laughs> when our alphabet only has 24. Um, and he went and he, and he preached to the Indians and he recounted in his journals uh, that Jonathan Edwards recorded. He recounted in his journals that the, the natives would listen intently when he would preach on wrath, on God's justice, and the coming judgment and what they deserved. He said that they would listen intently and they would agree with him, but they were unmoved by it. They understood that they were sinners and that they were guilty before a holy God. But he said, but when I preached about the mercy of Jesus Christ, that he would come into the world, that he would love them so much to lay down his life for them. He said, these, these warriors, these men, these, these strong warriors would be broken with tears and weeping over the mercy of God to love them and show compassion to them. Listen, when you hear about the mercy of God, does it break your heart in that way? That you've received that kind of mercy, that kind of grace in your life. You know, listen, when we receive mercy in our lives, it begins to change us. It doesn't change us all in an instant in every way. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if it was just like, boom, everything's done and changed and perfect? It doesn't work like that, but it does begin to change us. It begins to change our heart. And this is what we see here in Paul. Okay, Paul um, ultimately began to change immediately as he met Christ, as he received mercy. And this is the fourth thing that we need to see. And we're going to close with this, okay? Um, fourth, it's the greatest mission because of the greatest need, uh, but also the greatest gift, but then also, also this, the greatest result happens. The greatest result happens. God-haters become true worshipers. That's the transformation that mercy brings about in your life. When you don't just understand mercy in your head and get, yes, Jesus showed mercy by coming into this world and by dying in my place. When you don't just get it here, but when you get it here, you begin to rejoice in it. And when you begin to rejoice in it, you begin to grow thankful in it. And as you grow thankful in it, God takes that life of yours, that God-hating life of yours. If you don't know Christ, you may disagree with this, but ultimately, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're a God-hater right now. That's what the Bible says. We don't have time to flesh that out completely right now. But if, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you are opposed to God and against God. But God welcomes God-haters into his family. He calls them and says, come, come, come. Be my children. Receive my mercy. Receive my grace. And when you receive that mercy, when you simply in faith in that moment where you realize the fact that you need a savior, that you desperately need a savior, when you realize that and you admit that need to God and you say, God, I need you in my life to save me from my own sin, to forgive me. And when you in that moment say, God, I've been doing it wrong. I've been trying to live by the rules. I've been trying to go in that direction and it doesn't work. I need you. And you simply out of humility, just pray, God, would you forgive me right in that moment? Mercy enters into your life, and mercy begins to change you. 
It begins to make you more compassionate. It begins to make you more loving. It begins to make you forgiving, willing to forgive those who have sinned against you in terrible ways. Mercy changes you. Listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, the really good news of this message is that you can know him today, right now in your seat. It's not about the words. It's not about the formula. All that it is is about a heart that humbles itself before the living God and says, I need a savior. Jesus, will you be my savior? Will you forgive me? And will your mercy change my life? Just call out to him. And if you're here today and you know the mercy of Jesus Christ, the application for you is how much rejoicing are you doing over it right now? And maybe if you're like me, um, I don't know, I I would say seven days a week I wake up grumpy in the morning, Uh, six days a week, nah, seven probably, more like seven, okay, seven. Anyone else like me in that? You're just grumpy first thing, okay? It's not my fault, God made me that way. Just just kidding, no, 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 it is, it is, okay, I was tricking you. No, it's my sin issue that I wake up grumpy, okay? And on the mornings when I wake up grumpy, which is almost every morning, okay, like the first 10 minutes, my wife was here at the first service and she understands. She's like, don't talk to Brett for the first 10 minutes, okay? Because he's gonna be grumpy, for sure. Um, (laughs) But she shouldn't have to do that, all right? But on the mornings when I wake up and before I roll out of bed, first thing, when I take a moment and I thank God for the mercy that he's shown me in Jesus Christ, that changes my day. And I can just tell you that my family knows first thing in the morning when I wake up, even before I make it down to the coffee pot, they know, okay, whether I've just woken up in the flesh or whether I've woken up thankful and giving thanks for God's mercy. And so if you're like me, if you're a grumpy morning person, just, just before you even hit the, your feet hit the floor in the morning, just thank God for his mercy. Just give thanks. Give thanks throughout your day. Thankfulness, a thankful heart will change you. Why? Because mercy changes you. Mercy is the greatest result. It takes God-haters and transforms us into true worshipers. That's what happened in Paul's life, and this is what this whole passage is going after. Notice what Paul writes right here in this passage. Paul's writing this. He's writing these things to Timothy, his young protege, and uh, he's writing to him, and he's writing about the mercy that he's received, and he barely even gets the line out, and notice what happens to Paul. He just explodes into praise. Did you see that? Like, isn't this a really weird place for doxology? Isn't this just a weird place for worship? You're like, where, where is the transition here, Paul? Like, what's going on? Did they lose something? No, Paul's recounting the mercy that he's received because he was such a sinner, the foremost of sinners, but God showed him mercy that he explodes into praise. Notice what he says, verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why would Paul explode into such praise? Why? Because mercy changes you. It changes you from the inside out. And when we as people begin to realize that the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus Christ is not just a story, but it's the greatest reality. It's the greatest rescue mission that God stepped down into human history, that he lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die in order to show us mercy and then to give us grace. Wow, that changes everything. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I just invite you to ask yourself, why not? Why have I not received his mercy? Listen, this morning, right now, the Lord holds out his hand to you to offer you mercy. He's holding it out to you right now, saying, Mercy, grace is right here for you right now. Take it. 
When Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost, he may be seeking you this morning, tugging at your heart this morning, holding out that grace to you, saying, take it. Take the mercy. Why would you reject it this morning? Will you reject it this morning? Will you, in hard-hearted coldness, curl up your hand and say, no, I can do it on my own. I don't need you. And would you dare to shake that fist at God and say, no, I'll do it my way or no way. Why wouldn't you take his mercy this morning? Listen, it's a day of grace right now, but that day of grace is not going to last forever. There is a coming judgment at the end, okay? And we don't know whether this will be our last day on this earth or not. You don't know how many more days you have, but we are told that it's appointed unto a man once to die and then the judgment. But today, right now in this place, right now in this moment, Jesus Christ is offering you grace and mercy to be received freely without cost. Take it if you haven't taken it. And just take it by simply saying, Lord, I need a savior. Just forgive me. I can't even know what all my sins are, but there's a lot of them. And I just want you to be my savior right now. You can just do that in your seat right now if you've not trusted him. If you have trusted Jesus Christ this morning, it would be awesome to see you leave this place with an overwhelming gratitude for mercy that you and me, being the foremost of sinners, guilty in God's books, have received mercy. And not only mercy, but he's piled grace on top of that. How awesome is that? Just this, this old hymn by Julia Johnson I love, and I'm just going to read a verse, and then we'll pray and close. Um, Julia Johnson wrote the hymn, uh, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin, and she s- sings this, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, There where the blood of the Lamb was spilt, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Today, Jesus Christ wants to offer you mercy and grace piled on top of it. Will you take it today? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of this passage that we have just read and just heard. Um, God, we thank you for the fact that we are guilty, but you came into the world to save guilty people and to show mercy and to show grace. Lord, I just pray uh, for those right now who may be here that don't know your grace, don't know your mercy, Lord, would you open their heart to receive it today, God? God, I pray for those um, who are here that do know your mercy and do know your grace, but have grown cold to it, God. God, would you do an incredible work of goodness in them, Lord, to make them more excited about your grace and your goodness to them than they are about anything else in this world. And Lord, would you give them such a joy and such a fullness in Christ that they would be compelled to go and tell others about the mercy and the grace that they have received. Lord, lead us in these things. We pray in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.